See, I think one of our problems today, we have diminished what it means to be an overseer of the church. If we elevate the royal priesthood of all believers, we say it's all of our jobs. I can, I can connect with Jesus on a kayak and I can connect with Jesus at a baseball game and I can do all these things. All of that is true. But if we do that in a way that diminishes what God has created, this organization and institution of people, not buildings, not programs, but of people, we diminish what God has for us. Paul, he says, look, the task of being an overseer, it's a noble one. You should aspire to that. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay, because faith is not about having it all figured out, and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. We serve a God who takes ordinary, unschooled men and women and does incredible things with them. As we continue in Acts, we're going to continue in Acts chapter 5. If you'd like to join us, And follow along, you can follow along in the blue Bibles that you have in front of you or upstairs around you. If you have your own Bible or your phone, you'd like to use that, that's okay too. Acts chapter 5, page 1139 in the Bibles that we provide. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits And they were all healed. As we journey through this book of Acts this summer and we look at what the early church was like, the people of God were like, perhaps you're noticing a few key themes that seem to come up over and over and over again. One of them being that the church was known for the miraculous, the extraordinary those who were sick being healed, those who were oppressed being set free. Oftentimes it's hard to read Acts because that doesn't always feel like our world. Why isn't that happening today and in this place or for us? We read this book and sometimes it's hard to believe it's true because it seems so far from our reality. And yet, time and time again, the story comes back to God doing extraordinary things through really ordinary people. And in this little section of Acts, I found myself struggling to read it. I'll read it again here in a moment, and maybe you'll see why. 
There's a challenge in language that sometimes can be really difficult to understand. It's the challenge of pronouns. Who or what are we referring to when we use pronouns? Like, think for a moment all the times you hear they or them show up in this little text. And as I read it again and ask yourself, who are they that it's referring to? Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Who is this story all about? Who's doing the action? Who's the main character? Because they and them seems to be used to refer to a lot of different people. Who are they? The very first time it shows up in verse 12, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. If you remember a few chapters back, Solomon's portico, that was the place where Peter, as he was walking into the temple, the place in front of the temple, the porch there with big pillars, he was walking in and there was a man lame from birth. For 40 plus years, he had been laid there to beg for help. And this man was begging Peter and John for money and Peter looked at him and said, look at us. And then he said something incredible, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And this lame man takes him by the hand and stands up and as he's standing, his ankles and legs are strengthened and he begins to dance with joy and everybody's filled with awe and wonder, except for the religious leaders who didn't like how it was upsetting their system. And didn't like how it was taking away the prestige and the glory from them and shifting it to Jesus, the one who rose from the dead. And so Peter was thrown in jail and threatened to stop talking. And instead, they prayed for boldness and persisted all the more. Here the story continues. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Perhaps we're led to believe that it was the apostles who were doing all of the miracles and nobody else. In fact, there are people to this day who say these gifts and these miracles and these extraordinary things were reserved just for a few people in a season of time so that all people throughout all time could know that the message they proclaimed was true. As you'll see in a few weeks, uh, what comes up in future chapters is other people who are not apostles also are performing signs and wonders and doing miraculous things. So some read the word they and, and believe that they refers to the apostles. The apostles were gathered together in Solomon's portico. Others read the word they and think it refers to all the believers. And that makes a difference, but we'll get there. None of the rest dared join them. Who are the rest? 
Perhaps the rest refer to all the other believers if it's just the apostles who are there in Solomon's portico. The others reserved that place for them and said, hey, the apostles have a special status and maybe they're a little bit elevated and holier than us perhaps and so we won't join them. Or maybe the rest refers to all the non-believers, those who weren't Christians. See, if you don't know this, Being Christian wasn't popular at the time. In fact, there's a growing amount of suffering and sorrow that's coming to Christians. The more you read the book of Acts, the more you're going to read about how one of the key themes that comes up over and over again is being Christian is hard and unpopular. Living for Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, is not going to get you favor in all circumstances. In fact, at times, it may make you an outcast and an outlier. So perhaps the rest who didn't join them were those who were not believers yet. And they saw the things the apostles were doing and the healings that were happening, and they were actually intimidated. If we go near that, even just to witness, will we be guilty by association? Now, we live in a world today where we have the freedom of religion. You guys could have chosen this morning to sleep in and not be here. You could have chosen this morning to go to any number of other churches. In fact, some of you I know go to two churches. You go there and then you come here every Sunday, and I love that. You could have chosen to go to a Muslim uh, place of worship or a Jewish place of worship. You could choose your religion freely and largely in this country with very few exceptions Whatever you choose doesn't matter. And I don't mean that as in like they're all equal. I mean, if you get up tomorrow and go to a different church or next Sunday you go to a Muslim place or if you go somewhere else, you're not likely to be ostracized or persecuted or killed for your choice. We have this great blessing of freedom of religion. Now, if you don't know much about history, that blessing in part comes from a man named Constantine. Have you ever heard of him? Some of you? Okay. Constantine was an emperor of Rome, and in about 312, he had a vision. He was going to war, and in this vision, he saw there in the sky a great cross made out of fire burning in the sky, and in the the sky next to it were words in Greek that said, by this sign, conquer. And that night, he had a dream And in his dream, Jesus came to him carrying a big cross that was burning and came to him and told him, by this sign, conquer. And so he put that cross on his shields and he won the battle and he said, hey, maybe this Jesus guy is right. And he became a Christian. Not my conversion story, kind of a weird one in my opinion, but he becomes a Christian and through that that, um, process of becoming a Christian, he ends up declaring, you know what, I think the whole empire should stop killing Christians. Large part because he was one, right? It's really easy to tell people to stop killing your own people, right? That's simple. And so he becomes a Christian and he makes Christianity legal in the whole empire of Rome. And what this did was it changed the church. See, if you were no longer afraid that you were going to die for being a Christian, And if perhaps there is even favor to be found in being a Christian, because now the government smiles upon it, it made being a Christian a little bit easier, and it made a whole lot more people who were currently or previously hesitant 
Say, yeah, sure, I'll become a Christian. What will it cost? It's not going to cost my life. It's not going to cost my family. It's not going to cost my wealth. Sure, I'll join. And shortly after, when he made it legal, the whole church changed. And for the last 1,700 years, you and I have been reaping this benefit. If you live and grew up in the Western Hemisphere, and anything in the Western Hemisphere, your world has been shaped by that decision in every way. Because we live in a culture, whether you're Christian or not, that has been fundamentally influenced by the role of Christianity in this world. So perhaps they were the people who weren't yet sure this was good, who were hesitant and far off. Now, why do I share all of that about Constantine? Well, I share that because today in this world where being a Christian doesn't cost much, where you don't have to sacrifice a whole lot other than maybe a little bit of sleep, and you roll out of bed, and and generally, being a Christian is just as easy a decision as do you want to go to McDonald's or Taco Bell? It's not that hard. Because of that today, there's a whole lot of people who say, we just need to get back to the way it used to be. And they act like this early church had it all put together and had everything figured out and didn't have any problems. And and not only do they act like that, they act like part of the blessing of this early church was that it had zero structure or zero institution by any means. And so there's a desire for many today to say, let's just reject everything that seems institutional and let's just have my faith and do it my way. But I think as we read they and them in this story, there's an opportunity to see that that's not necessarily good. You see, here's what happens. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Who is the them being held in high esteem? Was it all the believers together? who together were praying for boldness and had everything in common, and these believers who were a community that were so different from the world that they were loving the outcast and caring for those who were oppressed and serving one another with whatever it took, were those the ones who were held in high esteem? Perhaps. In fact, if you read in 1 Peter, it talks about how every one of us belongs to a holy race, a royal priesthood that you and I have been called as Christians to be the very people who proclaim to this world that Christ is risen, who share the forgiveness he offers with everybody who's needing it, who give grace to everyone who doesn't deserve it, and mercy to all in need of it, and justice where justice needs to be proclaimed. You and I as the royal priesthood have the responsibility to give everything we have for the sake of those who don't yet know how good he is. But also, some of us are called to do it differently. Perhaps those who were held in high esteem was the apostles. See, if we read the theys and thems here to refer to the people or the apostles, we get two very different but similar pictures. If they and them here refers to the Christians and the believers and those outside, what we see is a community intrigued but distant. These people, Christians, are unique. 
but they're a little bit intimidating, and I'll proceed with caution. Or you see a group of believers who say there's some in our midst who God has called to a unique and special role, something different from the rest of us, which does not take away our responsibility. In fact, it elevates our responsibility. They were held in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. Who is it that carried them? Was it those outside looking in saying, we don't get you Christians, you're strange and you're weird, but we know that whatever you're doing works. So here's our sick people, will you bring them healing? Here's those who are oppressed by demons, will you set them free? Or was they, the Christians, seeing these apostles as ones who are bringing healing? And they're bringing whoever they can find, come and freely receive. Come, let me lead you to one whose very shadow might bring you healing. Have you ever thought about that? Like, if you just walked by somebody and suddenly they got healed, you didn't even acknowledge them or talk to them or look at them and just your shadow fell upon them and they got healed. Wouldn't that be weird and maybe intimidating? Certainly. But whoever they are believed that Peter's shadow would do just that. Why? Let's look at Mark chapter 6. This is what happens to Jesus. It says, he ran about the whole region, and the people ran about to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard Jesus was. And wherever he came, in the villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. With Jesus, there was this idea that simply being around him, even just on the outskirts to touch the very edges of who he was, would be enough to bring healing. And whoever they are believed that Peter and the apostles, in some sense, had the same power and authority as Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said so. He said to his disciples before he left, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Because he has authority and he has called us to be his and he's told us greater things will come because he has risen from the dead, go and make disciples. So Peter and the rest of the apostles were going and making disciples. They were sharing this good news, this promise of the resurrection and even the shadow from Peter was believed to bring healing to those who were sick. I don't know if the shadow ever healed anybody. Like, it never tells us that the shadow actually healed people. But what it does tell us is that everybody who was brought near was healed. And everybody brought near was set free. Everyone. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. I wonder, and I've been wondering most this week, who they are. You see, because if they are the people of God believing that this promise of the resurrection changes everything, 
you and I have a really big problem because I don't see people being healed whenever they come near us. In fact, in our culture today, a lot of people find the church is actually really off-putting because Christians are sometimes the worst. Have you ever noticed that? And sometimes we celebrate that we're the worst. Like we know that we're a big mess. We're like, I know I'm a big mess. Thank God I'm forgiven. And then we just keep being a big mess as opposed to thank God I'm forgiven. Like that mess doesn't define me. It's not who I am. And even though I'm still continuing to be a mess, I am made new each day. See, if, if they is referring to all the believers and all the people, we are not doing our part to bring all who are hurting and oppressed to find healing and freedom. And if they refers to the apostles, we have a problem as well. You see, we often think because of Constantine, everybody who came before Constantine had this totally free approach where it's just completely everybody willy-nilly doing as they pleased, and we all together were this perfect commune of hippies loving one another, and it was great. Unless you were here last week when Ananias and Sapphira tried to lie and fake it and were killed for that by God himself, not by the people. See, as you read through Acts, there's this weird dilemma we have to wrestle with. God takes ordinary, unschooled men like you and me, and he calls us into something extraordinary, walking with him that the whole world might find healing and freedom. And from those ordinary, unschooled men, God raises some up to help lead others in that journey. See, the apostles, I don't believe, are the only ones who can bring healing, but they're certainly really important. In fact, you see in the book of Acts, Peter, after Jesus ascends into heaven, is like, we need to replace one of us. You remember Judas? He's no longer here. So we get Matthias. After Pentecost, Peter steps up. It's not all the believers who step up. Peter does. He says, let me tell you about the resurrection. All throughout this, we see time and time again, the church is organized and formed, and there are individuals who are called to lead. Not to do the work, but to help others figure out how to do it to continue to remind them of the resurrection, that all the distractions and worries and cares that can come against us, they can say, look, set those aside. This is what it is all about. And in fact, later on in Acts chapter 11, you see that they're called to appoint overseers over the believers, those who will care for other believers, lead them in faith to walk with God. In Acts chapter 15, they're wrestling with a really big dilemma because Peter has had this vision where God says, look, all of the Gentiles, those who were formerly disconnected and on the outside, they're all brought new and brought in. And every one of them now belongs to my people. There's no longer us versus them. It is all us in Christ. And Peter has this vision And the gospel begins to go to the least worthy people, the pagans who are worshiping all kinds of other gods and the prostitutes and the tax collectors, just as Jesus did with this good news. And it stirs some up to say, wait, 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 are you watering down this truth of God? 
Are you changing his message to make it about all people and for everyone? And in Acts 15, we see the church gathers together to decide, how do we know if this is true or not? If this is really for all people? And James, the brother of Jesus, at that point, kind of steps up and replaces Peter. And from that point forward, Peter is really a small detail in the whole story. And James steps up and gives them a solution. Here's how we proceed forward. And they all say, okay, let's go with it. And later, Paul, he writes to Timothy. Paul, if you don't know, we'll get to him in a few chapters, was a murderer who endorsed the murder of Christians, who hated Christians, And God calls this ordinary, unschooled mess of a man and says, I have something for you. And he leads him to be one of the greatest missionaries the world's ever seen. And Paul, along the way, regularly raises up leaders to come behind him, alongside him. And he says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Be like me as I'm like him. And time and time again, he writes to them. And in one of the letters he writes is in Timothy. Timothy was a young prodigy who followed Paul in quite a few of his journeys, who went along with him to learn from Paul not only this good news and this gospel, but what it means to share it with the whole world. And he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, he says this, as Timothy is preparing to lead the church in a very organized fashion. In fact, elsewhere he says, Timothy, raise up elders, men who can come alongside and serve and support the churches you're leading. He writes this, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. See, I think one of our problems today we have diminished what it means to be an overseer of the church. If we elevate the royal priesthood of all believers, we say it's all of our jobs. I can, I can connect with Jesus on a kayak and I can connect with Jesus at a baseball game and I can do all these things. All of that is true. But if we do that in a way that diminishes what God has created, this organization and institution of people, not buildings, not programs, but of people, We diminish what God has for us. Paul, he says, look, the task of being an overseer, it's a noble one. You should aspire to that. Just a quick aside. How many of you have ever considered becoming a pastor? I warn you, I didn't want to be. In fact, I still some days don't want to be. Let's be honest. I had no desire to be a pastor because I looked at verses like ordinary unschooled men in Acts and I said, why would I do that? I don't need the system. It's broken. In fact, if you've never worked at a church, you realize church work is super messy. And some pastors like to make the joke that they love their job if it wasn't for their people. Uh, I've made that joke before, but I can't honestly say that because my job is meaningless without you. Like, you are what I do. And I didn't want to be a pastor because I saw how broken the church is. And I looked at the institution of the church and I thought, this looks nothing like Jesus. I want to run from it. Well, in scripture, God often compares the church, the people of God to his bride. And over a period of about six months when I was actively trying to run from becoming a pastor, 
I really felt like God showed me that image very strongly. I had recently gotten married. Actually, that's not true. I was just about to get married. But anyway, I, I was getting married to this lovely woman, and he kind of showed me this journey that if I invited you into my house, and after dinner you came over and said, that was so much fun, but you know what? Your wife's terrible. I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. And then if I invited you back and you came back to my house later and you're like, I really think you're awesome, Adam, but your wife, I can't stand the way she talks. And then a little bit later, do you know the things your wife did? Do you know how many times you'd be invited over? Very few. You see, there's something about my wife that you can speak truth about her. She's not perfect. Though closer than I am, she'll tell you. But if you continually come into my house and want to say you love me and you don't love my wife, you're not really loving me. And as I was running from becoming a pastor, God made that really clear to me. His church, as broken and messy and ugly as we are as a people, is still his bride. And if you love Jesus and want to do so without loving his church, that's a dangerous place to be because he loves his church so fully. Are there programs and people and, well, not people, are there programs and buildings and, and problems in the church that Jesus would love to see different? Absolutely. But the people of his church, he deeply cares about. So Paul, he says, look, this is a noble task. Maybe some of you have never given it an honest day's thought that what the church and all of its broken, messy ugliness needs is a broken sinner like you to step in and say, I'm here to love it anyway. Maybe that's what we need. Continues, Paul writes, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul gives a pretty high standard for who should lead the church. And as a pastor, that was weird. God, is that you? As a pastor, I have to confess this standard that Paul gives is really difficult, but it's really important. You see, we live in a culture that diminishes what it means to be a pastor or to have a pastor or to be the church or to belong to an institution and a body that's bigger than yourself. And we live in a culture that thinks my freedom of religion means I'm free to do whatever I please. And because of that, what we lack is those who are held in high esteem. Men who will say, I will live in such a way 
that I'm different from this world. Maybe it will cost me everything. Maybe it won't. But his people need it. I love this story in Acts, and I wrestled with it because they're just a few short verses, but I think they're really important for us today. You need to hear first and foremost, it is not my job to bring healing and freedom to all who are broken. Who brought those who are hurting? Perhaps it was outsiders who revered the church. Probably it was the believers who revered what God was doing and wanted others to know it too. You have a responsibility in your life to live and act in such a way that everybody looks at you, whether they believe in God or don't, whether they follow him or don't, whether their life is filled with all kinds of terrible sin or they're lying about it. Whatever it is, you have a responsibility to live in such a way that in you people see the healing Jesus offers. Some of us have a responsibility. In fact, I believe some of you have a responsibility to say maybe God's calling me to do something more that stretches me further than I'm comfortable and to take me beyond what I really desire, but his church is worth it. And all of us have a responsibility to say, God, I don't always love your church. It's not always pretty, but I will give whatever it takes that these people around me can walk with you, find healing and comfort and freedom. And I believe wholeheartedly that when we take this task seriously, Knoxville will notice. Your employer will notice. Your neighbor will notice. And they may not like what they find, but they'll notice. In fact, next week, the very next section that happens, these men held in high esteem are arrested for the things they're doing. If you and I love and live with grace and mercy and purpose and the promise of the resurrection, people will notice and many will be healed. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you that you have called us to give everything. Because you rose from the dead, we're invited to be in a community that is not about me, it's not about us, it's all about you. God, you've given us a task of living holy, of being set apart and above reproach, unlike this world. We thank you that you consistently call those who are broken messes, like Noah the drunkard and Moses the murderer with the stutter, God, you call Abraham the, the one who was barren in his old age. You call David the rapist. God, you call Saul the murderer who hated Christians and Peter the man who denied you. And me, God, a sinner who is not perfect by any means, an ordinary unschooled man, I thank you that you have called every one of us to live in such a way that this world takes notice and sees the healing 
and the freedom you offer. May we be those people today and tomorrow and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before we collect our offering, I just want to throw this out there. I came from a church, the very church that asked me to go to seminary when I said kindly, I'll pray about that, which meant not a chance in hell, but I can't tell you that. (laughs) The very church that asked me to go to seminary and led me on that journey of seeing that even in all of its ugliness, God's church is his bride and he loves it. One of the things I loved about that church is they talked about sending men to become pastors so often and so regularly that for almost 25 years straight, they had somebody in seminary becoming a pastor from that church. My hope and my prayer would be that if God is nagging, or is nagging and tugging on your heart, say maybe you need to be a part of what he's doing and leading other people to walk with him, I hope you'd listen. And if you have to start by saying not a chance in hell, that's okay, he'll work on it. As we collect an offering today, we're going to collect an offering because we believe God is moving through our midst and in our midst. In fact, if you had an opportunity to join us, yesterday morning we hosted about 35 people from around the area to learn more about human trafficking. And it was incredible because most of them had no idea that this isn't a thing happening overseas and somebody else's problem. It's happening right here, not only in Knoxville, in our very neighborhood, and it's happening a lot all the time. And so we collect an offering so that the money we gather can be used not only to support the things like coffee and toilet paper for you, but also to be given away to other organizations to support the causes that they are fighting for, the justice they're seeking to bring. And so if you came prepared today to give and you want to partner with us in this endeavor, you can give with cash or check in the popcorn bucket that's in the back corner over here as you leave. If you fill out a Connect card so we can pray with you or encourage you or just reach out to say hello, you can place that in the bucket too. And if you came prepared today to give and you'd like to give and partner with us by giving online, you can give at thepointknox.com by clicking the little teal button in the bottom corner. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. Well, every week we invite your questions and I'll do my best to respond to them. Uh, Emily, I have a quick question for you. Was that your new apartment there? That's my new apartment. So if maybe you've noticed there's a change in scenery in the videos. Emily and Tyler, well, Tyler moved while Emily's struggled through COVID. Apparently everybody who went to the gathering of 25,000 youth in Texas came back sick. So I'm glad you're feeling Shocker. better now. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> no, I'm out, I'm out. CDC said I'm good. So what questions came in today that I can attempt to respond to? Okay, so the first question came in actually Monday, um, and that said, I had always thought that Adam and Eve were the first people, and I've always wondered where Cain's wife came from. I did some reading in Genesis and came across Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, which talks about creating mankind to take care of animals. Does this mean that Adam and Eve were not the first people? No. So Genesis is written in a very unique way, but chapter one is uh, kind of a story of the whole of how things came to be. So when God writes about uh, creating man and woman in his image uh, to care for all of creation, uh, it's not the specifics, here's how it came to be necessarily, but it's like, hey, this is the purpose of all the things I created. 
And then chapter 2 actually begins a creation narrative that goes chapter 2 through chapter 4. And the main emphasis of that little section is the fall and God's promise of salvation even in the midst of that. And so where did Cain's wife come from? Probably his sister. And that comes with a whole lot of other questions the Bible doesn't talk about. So I just will fill in the blanks with God figured it out. And I don't know. Cool. Okay, next question. It's a lot of unknowns. We just have said, I don't know. Um, in the Bible, it talks about storing your treasures in heaven. However, earthly man knows only treasures as precious metals, gems, and of course, money. As heaven has roads paved in gold and gates of pearl, heaven has no need of these things. So what exactly are treasures in heaven? Yeah. Great. Uh, so I will say a couple of things. First and foremost, there's a lot we can and should treasure that's not gold and silver. Um, like you can treasure people and value them, and you can value time, and you can value um, words of affirmation and the gifts people offer, and there's a whole lot you can treasure that is not uh, material things. So I would say what are treasures Storing them in heaven is, is emphasizing what you care about are things that are eternal and not things that are fleeting and fading. Um, like hope and love and joy, those things are going to last forever. So are you placing all of your focus on those things or on the here and now? Second, what are the treasures in heaven? It talks about uh, crowns and rewards. And honestly, the Bible uses some imagery that doesn't really tell us clearly I know, as you're about to say, because I heard you say it, some people think that, you know, it's the souls you bring to Jesus. I don't believe that, actually, because I don't bring anybody to Jesus. None of my preaching does that. I'm not good enough to save anybody. He is. He's already done the work. I might just tell you what he's already done, but I'm not doing it. So um, I don't think it's the souls we bring. I, I think it's just when we do good works, they don't earn us favor with God. Like, we don't become more loved by him but somehow we're rewarded for them. Like my kids, when they listen and they do what they're asked, I don't love them more. Sometimes when they don't do that, I love them less, but that's because I'm <laughs> sinful. I'm broken, right? Still working I, on that ax list, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't love them more when they do what they're supposed to, but I'm certainly more prone to give them a cookie before bed or ice cream at the end of the night or something simply because I do love them and I want to reward them for the things they've done. So that's the way it works with God. What are they? I don't know. He'll figure it out. It'll be worth it for now. Just follow him and love him and love your neighbor. He'll work the rest out. Love it. Okay, next question. Is there any historical information on what happened between the bold Peter and Acts and the cowardly Peter that was rebuked in Antioch? It hardly seems like the same man, almost like he regressed to pre-Holy Spirit Peter. Yeah, uh, if you read in the book of Galatians, Paul actually rebukes Peter pretty bluntly. And it's like, Peter, you're, what are you doing? And the truth is every one of us in our journey with God will have times where we struggle to do what is right and good and where we may go back to our old ways and old habits and even old thought processes. And Peter's case in Galatians, what you see is um, there's a group of people who are like, hey, these Jewish customs we used to hold to are really important. And he's like, yeah, you're right. They're kind of important. Maybe we should go back to that. And he begins to create division in the church on accident. 
And so I don't know what led to that other than every one of us is a work in progress. And so we're going to have times where things are great and times where they're not. And we need each other to hold us accountable and to help challenge us in the times when we're really comfortable with things that we should not be comfortable with. We need one another to say, hey, that's not what God has for you. Let me lovingly show you a better way. Awesome. Okay, these are, there, we have two questions left, both from the same person. So first, um, the first question is about Psalm 1. So I'm going to just read that, the first little bit of that. It's a great psalm. It's real um, short. You should memorize it. Oh, it's, it is short. Okay. Um, I'll just read the first two. Okay. Okay. Uh, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So that's some context. Um, I was just wondering if Psalms 1 tells us to not hang around sinners, then why does Jesus say to follow his lead and he hung around everyone, especially sinners? Yeah. So I like that. Blessed is a man who walks not in the ways of the wicked or uh, stands in the way of the sinner or seeks counsel. You're so close, yeah. So close. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm, pretty much. Memorize it. I don't. (laughs) But essentially, the psalm is about where are we following after? What are we placing our trust in? Hey, it's, it's blessed if you're not seeking wisdom and advice and maturity from people who are immature and uh, walking away from God. Because what they're going to give you is advice to pull you away from God. Um, so the psalm is about where you're, you're placing your trust and seeking counsel. Um, whereas Jesus, he didn't ever tell somebody to go and seek counsel from sinners. In fact, you don't ever see Jesus sitting down with a prostitute being like, I don't really know how to live a godly life. Could you tell me? Could you help me figure out what God wants? In fact, Jesus walked with his father in such a way that when he was with sinners, they were actually brought to his level, not the other way around. They, they were brought to see what you have is better than what I've been having, and I, I want that. And at times he called them out, and other times it just kind of happened because being in God's presence changes us. And so um, for you and I, we need to be cautious because we're not God. If we're going to be hanging out with people who are living in really open sin, we need to be careful that we're walking with the Father a lot so that we're prepared to be the light to them. And the best way I think we do that is doing it with each other, where we surround ourselves with people who are seeking after God and encouraging us and reminding us, hey, as we seek after God, seek after those who are far from him. And so we also spend time with sinners who are broken, not with judgment and condemnation, but love. That's it. Awesome. Okay, very last question. What is the difference between white or good magic and miracles performed in the Bible? The simplest difference, and this is not all-inclusive, but the simplest difference is who is the one doing the work. In miracles, God is the one at work through the hands of the people. In magic, it is us calling upon a power in the world, but not necessarily God, so that we can do the work, so that it can come in us and through us. And so magic is the attempt to have all of God's power and all of his goodness and all the things he does without having God. Uh, And so even white or good magic is still not good because it's still drawing from something other than God to be like God. Um, So if you want to be like God and see God do what he does, spend time with him and let the rest fall away, okay? Magic tricks, where do we stand on like card tricks? Uh, If you can do one impressively, I would love that. Uh, If you don't know Nick Cause, where's he? I thought of some walking. He's up there. He doesn't like... uh, 
large crowd, so I'm going to throw you under the bus, Nick. He can do this thing, you know, where he flips the card behind his fingers and makes it hide. And he did it, and my wife is so lovely. She was, like, blown away, like, where'd it go? <laughs> Truly, like, amazed. It was awesome. So magic tricks, if they're just, you know, deception and fun, can be great. As um, if they're lies. Yes. <laughs> what is it? The art of uh, illusion. Yeah, just, anyway. Um, you can always text in your questions, and maybe I'll have a response, and maybe I'll have to do some research. Uh, we believe questions are a healthy part of faith. So before you go, receive this blessing. Actually, before you receive this blessing, Kaylin over here will really not let me live this down if I forget. <laughs> Please take 30 seconds before you leave today to see Kaylin, and she'll take your picture because we're trying to put together a directory just to help us associate names and faces better and to help you associate names and faces of people you see all the time. So if you will stop by that connect table in the back corner, see Kaylin briefly, she would appreciate that. Thank you. Now receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.